Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. There's a lot going on. There's all manner of malfeasance, double talk and jive and rank fuckery we need to call out. And let's do some of that right now, shall we? It's the 85th birthday of George Carlin, as he used to say, let's do a fucking show. <laughs> George Carlin always said, let's do a fucking show, at least on one of my favorite albums. So let's, let's get started by talking about the big news of the day. And guess what? Uh, tonight's F-word rant. Are we calling this the F-word or the F-bomb? I'm still trying to figure out what we're calling this rant, but we appreciate your kind comments we get at the John Fugelsang podcast and at SiriusXM On Demand and on the app and our Facebook page. Um, talking about Roe v. Wade a lot in these opening rants, but tonight it's something different. The January 6th committee has just issued its first subpoenas to five sitting House Republicans. This is pretty big. Um, Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson said, before we hold our hearings next month, we wish to provide members the opportunity to discuss these matters with the committee voluntarily. But these five guys didn't want to do it. And the committee believes these five House members have crucial information about January 6th or the events leading up to it. And these subpoenas are targeting some of Donald Trump's former and present closest allies in the House. A number of them were engaged in many meetings and planning sessions during Donald Trump's deeply dishonest, crooked, illegal attempt to throw out the 2020 election results and install himself against the will of the voters. And the very fact that they gave subpoenas to sitting congressmen shows a sharp escalation in the committee's tactics. After months of wondering, how should we try to get these guys to cooperate nicely? If you have been waiting... For the Democrats to go on offense, brothers and sisters, today's the day. Kevin McCarthy, Scott Perry, Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, all of them had been previously asked nicely to cooperate with the committee. All of them said blow off. So the committee debated for months and months whether to even do this. The committee said in the release today, these members include those who participated in meetings at the White House, those who had direct conversations with President Trump leading up to and during the attack on the Capitol, and those who were involved in the planning and coordination of certain activities on and before January 6th. So having a congressional subpoena for a sitting member of Congress, there's not a ton of precedent for that in recent decades. And it's really not clear what's going to happen if any of these five complete nincompoop, dishonest grifters decline to comply. And I'll get into why they're all nincompoops and dishonest grifters. Um, the House has voted to hold two other witnesses, Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows, in contempt, referring those cases to the Justice Department. And of course, Mark Meadows, because he is stupid and corrupt, uh, initially complied, gave tons of information, including all those text messages from all those Fox News personalities that we have seen. And then Donald Trump criticized Meadows. He pulled back, sued the committee, and now they're referring him for indictments after getting everything they wanted from him. So who are the, who are the five? Let's go through it, shall we? Kevin McCarthy, um, possible future Speaker of the House. Now, let's just do a little history lesson because I'm going to explain to you why this is big. During the terrorist attack on our Capitol on January 6th, for a brief shining moment, little Kev briefly turned against Donald Trump. According to press results, he was in a very vulgar phone call as the riot was boiling over, and he was begging Trump to call off his goon squad. He begged him during the insurrection, and we know he said, call off the rioters, and Trump refused to do it. Trump famously said, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. 
And multiple Republicans were briefed on this call have said that McCarthy replied by shouting, who the fuck do you think you were talking to? And in the days immediately after the terrorist attack on our Capitol, it wasn't a coup, it was a terrorist attack, uh, Kevin McCarthy publicly said, the president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. And he, acknowledged, and he said that Trump acknowledged some responsibility for the riot. Now, now here's the thing. All of these guys only care about themselves. Modern Republican Party is nothing but a cult of selfishness. That's the only reason any of them do anything. Not to help people. Not to help the less fortunate. Not to help kids get health care. Not to help with education costs. They only care about their own political advancement. Look at Ted Cruz. He's just really obvious about it. So if all you do is care about yourself, eventually you will turn on each other. We're seeing that in the Pennsylvania GOP Senate race right now in the primary. Now again... Kevin has acknowledged he talked to Trump on January 6th as Trump's supporters were beating the hell out of cops on the Capitol steps. But he hasn't shared too many details. And the committee has requested information about his talks with Trump before, during and after the terrorist attack. Now, again, this is the same guy who took to the House floor after the rioters were cleared later that night and said in a very strong speech that Trump bears responsibility for what he called the saddest day I've ever had. And then he went on to join 138 other House Republicans in voting to reject the will of the American voters. Now, let's go back in time a few weeks ago. New York Times reporters Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin have a book coming out called This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. And they said that in this phone conversation on January 10th, four days after the attack, 2021, the top Republicans, McCarthy said that Trump should resign from the presidency. I've had it with this guy. He told the other Republicans and Kevin McCarthy came out and said, totally false. He put out a statement and called them all liars. He never said Trump should resign. And then we heard the audio. Chris. All right. I know, I know this is not uh, fun. I know this is not great. I know this is uh, very tough. But what I want to do, especially through here, is uh, I don't want to rush things. I want everybody to have all the information needed. Um, I, I've had it with this guy. Boom. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. There it um, is. Nobody can defend that and nobody should defend it. There it is. <laughs> so it would be nice if getting caught lying, dramatically lying on tape, would disqualify you from being the next Speaker of the House. That didn't happen. Kevin flew down to Mar-a-Lago and groveled at Trump's loafers. And by the summertime of last year, he was dodging questions about whether he thought Trump was responsible for the riot. Uh, and by July of last year, he was rallying other Republicans to vote off having any investigation of this. And it'd be great if that kind of flip-flopping from supporting Trump to criticizing Trump to sucking up to him again would disqualify him from being the next Speaker of the House. That didn't happen. So this subpoena of the man who might be taking the speaker's gavel from Nancy Pelosi this November. It shows the committee is really looking at Trump's state of mind during the violence. And Kevin McCarthy is most likely covering up direct knowledge of what Trump was doing and how Trump was deliberately trying to weaponize the rioters to complete a coup via terrorist violence. It's going to be very interesting. Now, the other four guys have all faced scrutiny from the panel over their actions around it. These are all bunch of nincompoop corrupt white idiots who were in touch with the White House for weeks ahead of the insurrection. They talked to Trump and his legal advisors about ways to stop the legal electoral count of votes on January 6th. The sort of, they were all in on it. They were all in on the plot to throw out your vote. And we know a lot of their efforts were detailed in texts that Meadows gave because Meadows is also corrupt and stupid. So Jim Jordan, yes, let's not look the other way. Jim Jordan is being sought out for at least one phone call he had with Trump on January 6th, and then about his presence at different White House meetings in the days leading up to January 6th, where they were all talking about the different strategies to throw out the will of the American people. Here's Jim, not too long after January 6th, on Fox News. Uh, listen to him dodge questions about talking to Donald Trump on January 6th. Listen to Jim Jordan dodging very simple questions about what he did that day on the phone. 
committee is obviously going to go down a number of different roads uh, about who knew what when, who was talking to coordinators of the protest. Did you talk to the former president that day? I've talked to the former president umpteen times, thousands. I mean, I may not thousands, I mean, on times, but countless, countless times. Uh -huh. I talked to the president. I never talk about what we talk about because I just don't think that's appropriate. Just like I don't talk about what happens in Republican conferences. So uh -huh. I've talked to the president numerous times. Uh, I continue to talk to the president. No, no, since no I mean on office. January 6th, Congressman. Yes, uh, I mean, I've talked to the president. Uh, I've talked to the president so many. I can't remember all the days I've talked to him, but I've certainly <laughs> talked to the president. Yeah. And, and uh, on that day, was. Can you share any of the insight of, of what he was thinking about that day? Uh, Brett, the people we need to come testify are the people who can testify to the fundamental questions. Why didn't the United he States Capitol, the People's House, have an appropriate security posture on that day? And what have we done? Those are the people we need to hear from. Yeah. Those are, that, that's the information and testimony we need to get. Uh, that's what we should focus on. But I don't think that Benny Thompson, the chairman of this committee, said everything's on the table until we raise this issue about the speaker's office is the one who knows what, what the security posture and why it was the way it okay. was. You, you get Once the idea. That question, so um, that's Jim Jordan when he's allowed to dodge a question and not be under oath. And that's probably the toughest questioning Brett Baer has ever done of a Republican in his journalistic career. Uh, Jim Jordan is terrified of these subpoenas. And that interview will show you why. When he can't to answer a direct question to Brett Baer, what about Andy Biggs? Why is he getting subpoenaed? Well, he was in those meetings as well leading up to January 6th. And uh, there's far-right activists who claimed he was involved in the planning of January 6th. He worked pretty hard behind the scenes to persuade state legislators to overturn the election. And there are claims that he tried to get a pardon for himself from Donald Trump after January 6th. Um... So Andy Biggs today decided the smartest thing to do would be to run right over to Fox News immediately and uh, talk about how victimized he was. And I want you to listen to him talking to John Roberts, who, if you need someone to make Brett Bear look like Cronkite, you bring out John Roberts, who appeared very lifelike today. Uh, John Roberts, at least, that's the bare minimum in informing the congressman that um, these subpoenas weren't leaked. Listen to it again. Fox News is the only place they can get away with this kind of dope bullshitting. This afternoon, thank you. John? Jillian, the January 6th committee issuing subpoenas for five House Republicans. They include our next guest. Let's bring in Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs. Congressman, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for jumping up on the camera for us. So in addition to you, the January 6th committee has also subpoenaed Kevin McCarthy, Scott Perry, Jim Jordan, and Mo Brooks. This is highly unusual to issue a subpoena to a sitting member of the House. What do you say? Yeah, I think it is unusual. Uh, I think the committee is Ill illegitimate. I thought it was that way when it started. I think what was particularly pernicious about this is that the, the Office of General Counsel that actually issues and approves subpoenas, they had the audacity to, to write us an email saying, would you like us to accept service of your subpoenas? We still haven't even seen the subpoenas, but apparently uh, some in the media have. So, what? so it's, <laughs> it, it indicates that this is really uh, more about... Uh, now watch uh, the Fox anchors not let him get away with a lie. Getting at the truth, if, if you want my opinion on it. Uh, sir, are, just so we're clear here, are you saying you think that the subpoenas have been leaked to the press? Well, well, yeah, because uh, we found out about it from Politico, uh, and uh, another one of those persons I was talking to, he was literally watching TV, and his picture showed up on the screen, and he wondered, well, what's that about? So, yeah. These were, these were leaked to the media. We still haven't seen them. Uh, our counsel, our, they didn't contact any of our counsel. And my counsel's been uh. in the press and public because I've been defending other actions by left-wingers for the last uh, month and a half. Now here it comes. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that they were so much leaked. Congressman, is that they were just released to the press. Uh, I've got a release from Chairman Betty Thompson's office here. Sure. It includes links to all of the subpoenas. I, I guess the big question is, will you comply with the subpoena? Well, I think this is an illegitimate committee that and and they don't really have the authority to, to issue subpoenas, in my opinion. So, <laughs> OK, so, so uh, you get the idea. He's terrified as well. And he's he, when Fox News doesn't let you get away with dodging a simple question. Then there's uh, Scott Perry, Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. Now, he also voted against certifying the election. He is under scrutiny for allegedly helping install Jeffrey Clark, who is a central figure in these efforts to throw out the election results at the Justice Department. Uh, if you don't recall, Scott Perry objected to Pennsylvania's electoral votes claiming constitutional infractions. He voted to have he literally voted to have votes from his own state thrown out. 
and all of the claims have been dismissed by the courts in his home state. He still supports the big lie. And when the House was voting to award congressional gold medals to the D.C. Capitol Police officers, Scott Perry voted against it. And then there's Mo Brooks. Which one's Mo Brooks, you say? These mediocre white authoritarians all bleed in together. Uh, Let me help you out. Mo was actually at the January 6th rally. He was the guy on stage who said this. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Now, our ancestors sacrificed their blood, their sweat, their tears, their fortunes, and sometimes their lives to give us, their descendants, an America that is the greatest nation in world history. So I have a question for you. Are you willing to do the same? Oh, get her. My answer okay, is so, yes. So, so remember what happened with Mo Brooks after this? Um, he was there cheering it on. We later found out he was wearing a uh, Kevlar vest because he was so afraid of getting shot that day. So months go by. Mo Brooks is getting scared of all the heat. And he said, we need to move on from this election. Donald Trump needs to stop talking about this. and We have to talk about the future. So he's up for re-election in the state of Alabama. And Trump rescinded his endorsement of him. Yeah. Trump, being a petty little bitch, rescinded his endorsement. And so here's Mo Brooks. They asked him about it, and he said, well, yeah, Donald Trump literally asked us to rescind the 2020 elections, to remove Joe Biden, install Trump, and hold a new special election for the presidency. Did he directly tell you to fight to decertify the election, the 2020 election? He did not use the word decertify. He used the word rescind. Rescind. What did that mean to you? I'm a lawyer. Rescind means that you render it null and void. Do you guys have the power to do that in Congress? No. And then immediately remove Joe Biden. I guess that would be through impeachment. Through the rescission of the election results. Got it. And then he did he say that he wanted Congress to immediately put him back into the White House? Okay, you're using the word Congress. Yeah. My statement doesn't say Congress. We never got that far because I explained to the president that what he asked is legally impossible and it violates the United States Constitution. Boom. So So there you get the idea. I mean, Mo Brooks doesn't know where to go. Trump cut him loose, and he's obviously a weak link because Trump's never going to come to his rescue. So what's going to happen? After the announcement, McCarthy, who really, again, wants to be House Speaker, and if Republicans take the majority in the midterms, he will be, and it'll be the worst nightmare of his life because most Republicans hate him. He said, I have not seen a subpoena. You know... (laughs) Again, if these guys keep on refusing to testify, it could end in contempt referrals to the Justice Department. And if Merrick Garland is still alive, that might do something. That's the cudgel the committee has been using to try to compel uncooperative witnesses to actually come in, put their hand in the Bible, and give testimony or turn over documents. Again, Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows. Now, you know, remind me, guys, how many Benghazi committees and hearings did they hold? Remember when Hillary Clinton just refuse to cooperate with their drawn-out partisan investigation? No, you don't remember that because she came voluntarily and she sat and she testified for 11 hours. It was on TV. These five mediocrities are all terrified because they know how crooked they are. They know how crooked Trump is. And if they tell the truth, it ends their careers. McCarthy is still saying they're not conducting a legitimate investigation. He says they just want to go after their political opponents. No, Kevin, no. The people on January 6th were going after their political opponents. They were trying to kill their political opponents. They wanted to kill Mike Pence, and they wanted to kill Nancy Pelosi. So, hey, at least they were bipartisan. Now, a lot of Democrats are saying, well, wait, hang on a second. If you do this, what's going to happen when the GOP is in power? This is setting a new president, and then Republicans will subpoena everybody. So that means we should do nothing? Guys, this is the Democrats actually going on offense. We've waited many years for this. Do... do, do Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan really want to argue that they don't have to comply with congressional subpoenas, considering how many they're going to want to give out next year. (laughs) They They might want to blow these subpoenas off, but they're also going to want to abuse subpoenas if they retake power. These subpoenas should be taken seriously. They should be enforced, but with jail time, just like they would for you, just like they would for me. And if these guys have nothing to hide, then they should sit there and comply. But that's not going to happen, will it? They'll only comply 
if they feel like they can't get away with not cooperating. And if they do comply, you know what's going to happen, right? They're all going to come down with terrible cases of amnesia. They will take the fifth. They will run out the clock. They will hope that the Republicans take the House this November and that this whole thing can go away. But either way, pay a lot of attention. You will see the extremes these mediocrities will go to to betray the Constitution, to betray their voters for their own political ambitions. Let us close with Joe Biden speaking about Kevin McCarthy at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I'm not really here to roast the GOP. That's not my style. Besides, there's nothing I can say about the GOP that Kevin McCarthy hasn't already put on tape. (laughs) Guys, it's getting interesting, and the truth will be known. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. We've had our share of great academics, philosophers, Nobel winners on the show. Um, and our next guest is uh, its truly an honor to welcome him. Classical liberalism is in a state of crisis. What began in Europe in the 17th century after wars over religion and nationalism has evolved into a system we call liberalism, a system for governing diverse societies grounded by fundamental principles about equality and, and the rule of law, a system that grants people rights to speech, to association, usually to self-rule. Liberalism emphasizes the rights of individuals to pursue their own kinds of happiness free from government encroaching on them. And it's no secret that liberalism as the world has come to define it, hasn't always lived up to its own ideals. In America, many people were denied equality before the law. Many people weren't counted as full human beings worthy of universal rights for centuries, be they women, African Americans, LGBTQ people. Now, in recent years, neoliberals have made a new kind of cult out of their version of economic freedom. The Electoral College has proven to show how undemocratic we can be. And authoritarianism is on the rise around the globe, including here, presenting peril to freedoms and democracy. Francis Fukuyama is one of our foremost experts on political science, economics, and public policy. He is the Olivier Nominelli Senior Fellow at Stanford University. He's previously taught uh, at Johns Hopkins University and George Mason University. He is, of course, the author of America at the Crossroads, uh, Identity, Political Order, and Political Decay. Um, His new book, however, is something that I wish every conservative and liberal, whatever those words mean, could own. It is liberalism and its discontents, and it defends liberalism as a doctrine to show why it's worth fighting for, how it leads to a better way of life, what the threats to it are, and how we got here. It is a great pleasure to welcome Professor Francis Fukuyama to the show. Hello, sir. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. I I must begin with a question I know you are asked constantly, I'm sure, on this book tour, if you can give us the definition of what you mean by liberalism, because in America, we have to do this. In America, it's a euphemism (laughs) for the left. In Europe, it's a euphemism for the center-right. How do you define the term, sir? Well, I don't use either of those definitions. Uh, To me, liberalism is a, a means of limiting the power of the state through a rule of law and through constitutional checks and balances. Uh, It's a doctrine that basically believes that all human beings under the skin are moral creatures that have uh, the right to make their own decisions about life. And it is law that protects the rights of those individuals as uh, as you indicated. I don't think that it is necessarily associated with a particular economic 
ideology. Liberals Correct. do like property rights, and it has been associated with a market economy, but not necessarily with the kind of extreme form of globalization uh, that uh, developed after the 1980s that is sometimes called neoliberalism, which I think mm -hmm. is a you know, a kind of worship of the market and a denigration of the state. I think classical liberals were, uh, you know, they, they were reconciled to having a state because you can't have law. Uh, you can't have the enforcement of people's rights if you don't have a state that's there to do that sort of thing. So that's my meaning of it. And it means that it applies to uh, a, a wide range of countries, even social democratic ones like Sweden or Denmark or uh, or classically, you know, the United States, Japan, other countries that have smaller uh, state sectors. Uh, you make me think about when uh, three years ago they asked Donald Trump, about the threat to the liberal order, and he thought they were talking about politics in San Francisco. So I thank you for that uh, measured definition. As you refer in the book, you say, I refer to the doctrine that argued for the limitation of the powers of governments through law and ultimately constitutions, creating institutions protecting the rights of individuals living under their jurisdiction. And the liberal world order is, as you outlined in the book, is what has led to the greatest reduction of poverty. It has led to the greatest global output in history, but it's still relatively a recent trend, isn't it, sir? Well, that's right. Uh, you know, liberalism got its start in the middle of the 17th century when Europe had been fighting for 150 years over religion. Protestants and Catholics were slaughtering each other, and the early liberals got up and said, well, hey, supposing that we don't uh, force people to follow a particular religious doctrine, supposing we tolerate a diversity of doctrines because we've been killing each other, uh, insisting on a certain one way of one vision of the good life, uh, maybe protecting life itself uh, is more important. Uh, and that's really where liberalism gets its start, this limitation of government. The government shouldn't tell you what religious, uh, what religion to profess. It gets challenged again in the 19th and 20th centuries by nationalism, where people want to say, well, your ethnicity determines, you know, uh, how you should uh, behave, how you should uh, uh, regard tradition and so forth. And that leads to two world wars and again, uh, to a really disastrous outcome. And so the doctrine, you know, keeps coming back because people are violent. They tend to... Um, you know, uh, fall into dictatorships and liberalism at that point seems like a pretty good alternative because it does prize peace and prosperity in many ways. Indeed. And I want to point out your book is a defense of liberalism, but it's it's not necessarily a defense of democracy, correct? Well, that's right. I think liberalism has been allied to democracy. So liberalism is really the law, the, the rule of law part of the, the bargain. Uh, democracy is really about elections and rule by the people. Uh, the two tend to go together because one of the rights that we want protected is our right to participate and have a share in self-government. But we do have regimes that are liberal and not democratic. So that would be you know, maybe Singapore that doesn't really right. hold free and fair elections, but they've got a pretty decent rule of law. But you can also have illiberal democracies. So right. Mr. Orban in Hungary says that that's what he's trying to create. He's legitimately elected, but he's not going to respect limits on his power. You know, not the courts, not the press, uh, not any of the uh, checks and balances that should exist in a real liberal regime. Uh, so the two can be split uh, in, in, in different ways. Yes, that's exactly who I was thinking of in, the, in terms of illiberal democracies. I think uh, Viktor Orban completely sums that up. In the book, you, you go through three basic reasons why liberalism is good, and you outline them as the pragmatic, the moral, and the economic. And I wonder if you could briefly unpack that for us, sir. Sure, sure. Uh, so the pragmatic part I've talked about already, that liberalism is fundamentally a means of governing diverse societies. You know, back in the 17th century, that diversity was religious. In the early 20th century, it was based on national identity. Um, there are many ways in which people can disagree with each other and fight one another. And in a liberal society, you basically agree to tolerate people that are different from uh, from yourself. And so it's a, it's a way of keeping the peace. The second important argument is a moral argument. 
that has to do with human autonomy. That is to say, our uh, our existence as moral creatures that can make you know decisions on our own. Sometimes they're practical decisions. You know, what occupation am I going to follow? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? But you know, in a deeper sense, it's also the uh, moral ability to distinguish between right and wrong, you know, to to make uh, moral choices and that ability to choose that basic and, and, and honestly, I think that that's what distinguishes human beings from animals is the fact yes. that they do have a sense of, uh, you know, of, of um, moral choice. Uh, that's the basic dignity that liberals believe makes us fundamentally equal under the skin. And then the final justification is really economic. Because among the rights that liberals like to protect are property rights and the right to transact and engage in commerce. And for that reason, liberal societies have always been uh, the richest and the fastest growing and the most prosperous in yes. history. And I would say even, even China, you know, when it started to reform its system, it actually incorporated certain liberal ideas so that, for example, instead of collective farms in 1978, uh, they started this household responsibility system where peasants were allowed to keep uh, the surplus that they had produced on their little uh, on their little farms, and that was a huge incentive. And you know, within four years, the output, the agricultural output of China, doubled, uh, which is a testimony, you know, to the importance of incentives. And so, in that respect, you know, China was following a liberal policy of protecting uh, people's property rights, and that's why. Uh, you know, they t they tend to be very prosperous societies as well as free ones in a, in a moral sense. Yes, I wonder uh, how Emperor for Life Xi regards that choice in 1978 today. But I, I you, you bring up a, a, an excellent point. I mean, if liberalism is what protects the right to own property and the right to transact, it would seem that our modern American conservatives turning that into a dirty word could ironically harm the exact kind of capitalistic life conservatives value. Well, that's right. I think what you're seeing is this big shift in uh, a lot of conservative politicians. You know, in, in the days of Ronald Reagan, they were very pro-free market, pro-property rights. But now you're having this cultural fight that's being picked, you know, between, for example, Governor DeSantis and Disney, where the government now wants to insert itself into some of these cultural battles and tell uh, corporations what to do, take away their tax privileges and this sort of thing. And so there's been a really big shift in, you know, uh, conservative understandings of the proper role of the state. Indeed, you, you do add in the book how left of center voters remain much more diverse in their political outlook. I agree. And that might present another irony. Is that in itself a bit of a threat to democracy, that, that in a big tent political spectrum, trying to raise all voices does, in fact, lack the organizational power of illiberal organized power? Well, that's true. Um, you know, the Democratic Party does have a lot of interest groups and subgroups and, uh, and the like. Uh, I think that there's a kind of deeper problem with that diversity because some of it, you know, ends up being not very liberal in the end because it kind of uh, asserts, you know, the importance of group rights and the fact that we need to recognize people as members of groups rather than as individuals who have accomplished things as uh, as individuals. And that becomes a source of tension, you know, I think within the more progressive camp, do we simply regard people you know, in a colorblind way, or do we look at their race or ethnicity or gender uh, before we consider them uh, as individuals? And that's a, you know, tension that's that's I think led to a lot of uh, hard feelings, you know, in 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 the culture wars. Can you give a specific example? Because I mean, I think of like say the struggle for transgender rights fits into the paradigm of of civil rights struggles as part of a liberal society. Well, it depends on how you interpret uh, these struggles. I would say that transgender rights, you know, the rights of gays and lesbians followed on the civil rights uh, movement as a liberal cause, basically. You were mobilizing um, marginalized groups, and in a democracy, that's what you have to do. You got to get people aware of their uh, the fact that they're being uh, uh, their rights are being taken away and they mobilize and they push for uh, equality, uh, a liberal equality where they're treated just the same as everybody else. I think that 
you know, in certain progressive circles, that's evolved into something different where they attack the idea of individualism. And they say that it's actually our group identities that are the most important, you know, the most essential thing about us. And therefore, you know, when you're distributing resources or giving out jobs or, you know, um, uh, establishing preferences, that's the thing you ought to pay attention to and not so much the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the accomplishments uh, of an individual or the individual's character. And that's the point at which identity politics ceases being a liberal uh, doctrine and, and, and turns a little bit illiberal. Uh, plus, you know, there is a there's a lot of intolerance on both sides of the spectrum uh, uh, that immediately, you know, uh, violates uh, other liberal principles about freedom of speech and about due process and the like. Um, uh, let me shift to uh, 30 years ago in the fall of the Soviet Union, when you famously wrote you acclaimed the end of history in the last man. Uh, you argue that liberal democracy was essentially the end point of mankind's ideological evolution. And as I'm reading your new book, as Russian troops are massacring Ukraine, uh, it makes the work feel very urgent and timely. You remind us that Vladimir Putin has declared liberal democracy obsolete. That's not really an uncommon opinion, is it, even in liberal democracies? Well, unfortunately, uh, liberalism has been attacked from both the right and the left. Uh, you have populist politicians, you know, Modi in India, Orban in Hungary, Donald Trump in the United States that really don't like the liberal constraints on executive power. And that's part of the reason that a lot of those individuals admire Putin, because Putin really is a single dictator that doesn't have to worry about checks and balances or the legal constraints uh, and, and the like. Uh, but I think, you know, there's also unhappiness on the left because liberalism being rule based and very procedural tends to also be very slow. Indeed. And it means that, you know, when you want to have, uh, you know, let's say you want to put in place a health care, uh, a set of protections for health care, or you want to, you know, take care of children with a tax credit or something, you've got to deal with the Congress where you can't get a majority. And, you know, that's very, very frustrating because it means that people are going to have to wait longer uh, for the kind of social justice that they that, that they think is is right. I, I do believe your stated opinion 30 years ago that, that liberal democracy is the best kind of system we can hope to evolve into that we know of. But just as this progress is inevitable, is not this backsliding inevitable as well? Well, you know, history never goes in a straight line uh, where you just yeah. stay on one course and it's a little bit better every single year. It's just not the way it works. Uh, you know, in the 1930s, we had a huge setback with the rise of Russia, you know, communist Russia and Ch uh, and uh, Nazi Germany uh, that set liberalism back uh, uh, and almost killed it. Uh, but, you know, after the end of the war, um, liberal societies flourished in Europe, North America, many other parts uh, of the world. So I don't think that we should expect uh, continuous progress. One of the problems, I think, in liberal societies is that after a while, people tend to get uh, complacent. You know, they're living in a peaceful, stable, relatively prosperous society, and they forget that the alternatives sometimes are violence, dictatorship, uh, you know, uh, the kinds of horrendous uh, military conflicts that engulfed Europe in the first half of the 20th century. And having forgotten that, they, you know, um, and taking liberalism for granted, they have other aspirations or they, you know, they, they feel other kinds of injustices. And I think that's kind of the state that the world is in right now. Uh, as you point out, illiberal authoritarians, one of their hallmarks is they're not constrained by things like law. And I'm curious, do you think that Donald Trump's defeat and his retreat to Florida show that the checks and balances of the modern liberal order were in fact able to withstand such a challenge? Well, yes and no. Uh, I think that in 2020, the checks and balances held up pretty well, especially the court system, you know, because Trump filed something like 70 different lawsuits challenging election results. And, you know, I, I don't think a single one of them really succeeded. Certainly none of them were taken seriously by the courts as evidence of, you know, large scale fraud. 
so in that sense, I think it worked pretty well. What I think is really dangerous is not so, well, a couple of things. I mean, obviously, January 6th, we're now learning as a result of the January 6th uh, committee, mm -hmm. was not just a, uh, a rally that was spontaneous and somehow got out of hand. It really was planned, you know, from the start uh, as a way of overturning a legitimate uh, election. And I think that, you know, having failed to do that, then um, uh, there are, Trump and other Republicans are, are going to have a second go at it. And for Indeed. that reason, they're trying to change state level laws, you know, that uh, regarding the way that electoral votes will be counted the next time. And I think that's very dangerous. And so the checks and balances worked in 2020. They may not work in 2024. I mean, Donald Trump ran on a very illiberal platform of of literally jailing his opponent right <laughs> in this century. I mean, I'm curious, Professor, what would you say was his most illiberal action as a leader? Well, you know, by far the unwillingness to accept uh, a legitimate election. Uh, you know, that's kind of a sin that we see happening in many um, uh, new or developing democracies where somebody, you know, refuses to step down and uses all sorts of illegal means to uh, keep uh, himself in power or herself occasionally. Uh, and so by far, I think that's the biggest um, uh, that's the biggest threat. But you're right that he began by wanting to use the Justice Department as a political weapon. And I think, you know, fundamental to any system of a rule of law is that the judicial system should be independent of who happens to be exercising executive power and that the same laws should apply to the most powerful as to the least powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's clearly not the way that Trump saw things. Um, let me ask about neoliberalism, because that, of course, spans both of our major political parties in the last 30 years. And you 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 make the premise, I think, quite fairly that, yeah, markets do produce prosperity in a liberal society. Where do they go awry? Is it when the markets overtake the power of the state? Well, I think that's part of it. Uh, you know, under that doctrine, we had a, a system of uh, global trade where companies were encouraged to offshore, you know, jobs seeking, you know, the, the smallest efficiency. Uh, and that was tremendously disruptive to communities here. Uh, we deregulated the financial sector, which I yep. think was directly responsible for the 2008 subprime uh, crisis because these big banks were able to take uh, enormous, uh, dangerous risks that that you know uh, hurt all of us. Yes. Uh, and in general, you know, it turns out that uh, governments are pretty necessary for a lot of things. And if you demonize the government uh, the way that neoliberals did. Uh, you're not going to have adequate regulation. You're not going to have adequate social protections. And I think that's the direction we were heading for a good 30 years. And of course, you know, as you point out, I mean, the subprime crisis in 2008 kind of did lead us directly to this right wing populism we're seeing now. No, absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, it was something that affected ordinary people and you know, we, we frankly, we talk about oligarchs in Russia, but we've got a class of oligarchs in the United States, you know, people that are worth many tens of billions of dollars, and uh, they can use that money to buy political uh, influence. And so I think a lot of people rightly think that the system is rigged because behind the scenes, this money is being used to uh, you know, to change outcomes in non-democratic ways. That's true. And I think that's really one of the things that fed the populist anger that led to the 2016 election. You're so right. I keep hearing about, you know, look at our most wealthy billionaires and they control Facebook. They control Bloomberg. They control the Washington Post. They control Microsoft. And hey, now Twitter. And I read all about foreign oligarchs on all of these platforms. I do want to ask you about about Xi in China. Um, how should we view the fact that he's amassed so much power that he's now essentially declared himself emperor for life? Should he be looked on as the? I mean, he has essentially. It, should he be right. looked on? I mean, should we view him as being the the real model, even more so than Putin? But she is the real model for illiberalism because whether his order succeeds or fails, it'll be a reflection of that whole mindset. 
Well, I think that Xi in the long run and China more broadly are more dangerous in a way than Russia. Sure. And they're more dangerous because they're bigger, they're richer, and they're more prudent. Uh, you know, Putin is a tremendous risk taker to the point where he's really uh, screwed himself uh, by this invasion. The Chinese are much more uh, careful. And I, <coughs> excuse me, I think that you know, down the road, they want to shape the international system according to their interests. And because they're careful, they'll be able to do that much more effectively. Um, what did you think of Marine Le Pen's loss? Well, it was good that she lost uh, because she was a fan of Putin until it became such an unpopular position in France. Uh, and she, you know, is a likes him for the same reason I think that Donald Trump likes him because she sees a model of an unconstrained uh, leader uh, that will, you know, reassert, you know, uh, uh, this nostalgic nationalist uh, line. What's disturbing is that in the three elections that she's run in, with every passing election, she's gotten a bigger share of the vote. So she was well over 40% in this election. And that means that there's a lot of people in France that are really upset with the establishment. Um, I want to, before I let you go, I do want to ask, how, to your view, has the pandemic affected the limits of this model of liberalism? Well, it's, um, you know, you might have thought that a pandemic would make everybody actually pull together and reduce some of the polarization that exists in the United States. And in fact, it's had the opposite uh, impact, uh, where you know, mandates for vaccines and masks became a marker of your which political tribe you belong to. And I think it fed a lot of conspiracy theories about, you know, shadow elites that were pushing vaccines or various remedies behind the scenes and, you know, ignoring the interests of ordinary people. And so I think it ended up not pulling us together, but worsening our polarization. Uh, and, you know, everybody's, uh, as a result, has been put in a very sour uh, mood. Uh, and I think that's adding to the kind of uh, political climate, this very angry political climate that we face today. So then let me close with this question I've been dying to ask you, sir. What's giving you hope? Well, I guess, you know, I take this very long term view about political systems and I see that over time, you know, you have threats to a decent order, but there is a kind of longer, you know, so-called arc of history where over time uh, society's gotten more compassionate, more equal. Uh, law has been, you know, more deeply entrenched. The trouble is it doesn't happen necessarily every year or in the next 10 years. Sometimes you got to wait for it. But I do think that uh, in the long run, there is a, a well, I, I would put it, you know, if you want to see some hope, you just think about where desperate people that are trying to leave violent and unhappy, badly governed countries, where do they go to? They go to liberal countries, you know, because yes. that's really the aspiration uh, of many people around the world. And I think it should give us a little bit of uh, confidence, self-confidence, you know, that our kind of way of life is actually pretty desirable. And that's why this book um, filled me with so much hope and so much weariness at the same time. It's such a pleasure, uh, Professor. I've admired your work for a long time. Francis Fukuyama is the author. The book is Liberalism and Its Discontents. We are so grateful that you would take the time to join us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sean. Be well. We're going to take a very quick break, and we will be right back with your calls. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Laura in Los Angeles, thanks for your patience. So, hello, hello. Hello. Uh, 
not doing well. What's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> but the weather here is great. It's windy in Chicago, though. Um, okay. I live on a peninsula uh, over by the port town, San Pedro. But I have two neighbors, radical right-wing nut jobs, and I can't avoid them. One I share as a tenant in the building, and I share okay. a garage with him. Okay. And the other one um, had a stroke about six months ago, and he asked me to take care of his cat. Well, so you're, and you're going to gonna show them how nice liberal people are, right? Well, that's what I do. And every day I go over there for free. I donate right. all the food. That's and right. And that's what I do. But today it came to a head when um, he goes into this rant, how the Democrats are destroying America. And I go by what I think are witty comments. I said, well, at least they're not destroying the planet. And, you know, I let him have a say. But then he made the statement. Uh, we were talking about this white guy in the neighborhood 47 times the cops have come out, and uh, 47 times he doesn't get arrested. And I said, you know why? Because he's a white guy. And he goes, oh, no, black people are so incompetent. So then he just went on this rant about generalizing black people. And I said, I'm still trying to keep all witty. Don't, is, the guy who's, is this the guy whose cat you're helping? Yes. Okay. And I said, and the cat's black, and my dog is black. I had my dog with me. I said, well, um, what about black people that are Republicans? He goes, yeah, they need to be educated on how to be a good American, and they have to become Republican. And I said, oh, well, my, my dog, I'm pretty sure my dog is a MAGA Trumper, so, you know, good thing I can't have a discussion with my dog. And right. um, I so, said, so and here's, the, here's my question. Go ahead, go ahead. Said, and the cat, the, the, his cat is black. I said, so I got it. And he called, the cat's name is Blackie. And I said, well, I got to go feed Blackie. And I said, and then I went on the offense because I know things about him. I said, but, but Richard, uh, you're on Section 8 housing. You take Medicaid all from Democrats. the California. Pro okay, that's right. And then you're on Social Security Disability. All programs created by Democrats. So instead of dictating your ideology, why don't you have some ethics and integrity and stop taking the handouts that the Democrats keep giving you? I love it. What do you say? Well, he backed down and he had to sit down and his face went white. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm going to give the guy another heart attack. <laughs> Listen, he doesn't so he, listen. You, you don't need to get in these arguments with anybody, but if you're kind enough to take care of this man's animals, I think he should learn a lesson uh, that maybe you don't want to be abusive to someone who's doing that. Let him know that it was the fastest decline in unemployment ever under Joe Biden. 7.9 million jobs added the most in any year. The GDP up 5.7%, double the average since 1976. Wages up 5.6%, the largest drop in the deficit ever. And he still won't care. So what do you care what he thinks? He's just proving everything you believe about ignorant conservatives. Well, it was when he went on the black people thing, and I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. I know, shut. I know. And, uh, but, but listen, then he takes hostage of the we Democrat gotta, talking we, points. We got to go, Laura. But listen, just ask him, what have Republicans done for non-millionaires in the last 50 years? Let him think about it. We got to take a break. We'll be right back with your calls. <laughs> 